Our sermon this morning is on the parable of the ten minas. We'll be in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Turn there in your Bibles, or keep your eye on the screen if you don't have, uh, don't have, have your Bibles. Uh, the parable of the ten minas is similar to uh, the parable of the talents that we read in Matthew chapter 25, but there's some key differences, enough to kind of make, make scholars conclude that uh, it was probably a different parable, um, or at least maybe a similar parable like, or a parable, kind of a variation on the same parable that was told to different people at a different time to kind of emphasize uh, a different point or something like, like that. And so what we're going to see as we read through it, uh, we're just going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in and read it. But what we're going to see is that, you know, Jesus is using this parable to illustrate, um, you know, theological truths about the person and work of Christ, who he is, about the kingdom uh, of God, uh, and theological principles about how we as God's people are called to respond to Jesus as our king uh, over his kingdom, how we're called to respond with, you know, repentance and faith and obedience and, and bearing fruit uh, in, our, in our Christian lives. So uh, that's Luke 19, 1 through 11. I'm going pr- to read through it and pray, and we're going get, to get rolling. It reads, as they heard these things, he, Jesus, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said, "Uh, you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And the nobleman, the king said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. They said, I tell you, everyone who has, or to everyone who has, more will be given. But from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite you here with us this morning. We pray that you would bless our time as we read and study and meditate and and, uh, seek to apply this text to our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would Quiet our hearts. Uh, If there's any 
uh, you know, just busyness in our hearts. We ask you to just calm us, help us to focus on you, focus on who you are and how we uh, can and should respond to you as your people. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Two reasons why Luke kind of uh, parenthetically uh, adds, uh, you know, kind of narrates why Jesus was telling this particular story to these particular people. One, he was near Jerusalem. Jesus knows uh, that he is coming to the end of his journey. He's been traveling for quite some time now, all the way from Luke chapter 9. He's been traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. The last couple of pericopes passages that we've seen, he's been in uh, Jericho, which is uh, about a dozen miles away from Jerusalem. And now he's getting even closer. He's near Jerusalem. He's realizing that, you know, this is my last chance to impart anything that's important, any words of wisdom that I need to impart. I need to do it now uh, because I'm going to get to Jerusalem and then I'm going to die uh, on on a cross. Like I just said that I was going to do uh, in Luke 18, uh, verses 31 and, and following. So... Uh, it's kind of like, you know, now or never in terms of the, the parting messages that you need to communicate to your people. That's reason number one. Reason number two is because uh, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus kind of knows the hearts and thoughts of his followers, knows what they're, what they're thinking. He knows that they're kind of operating under the assumption that, uh, you know, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem... It's go time. Like now it's time to overthrow the, the Roman government that is uh, occupying our city. We're going to send them running out of Jerusalem, out of, of Israel. We're going to be free from the foreign powers uh, that are take, that are kind of oppressing us. We're going to be able to, to kind of once again establish the kind of monarchy and rule that we had and enjoyed and experienced under King David. We're going to finally be free from foreign oppression and live with God under the rule of God in the kingdom of, of God. That's what they thought. Jesus knew better. Jesus knew that when they arrived at Jerusalem, he was going to be crucified uh, for the sins of his people. And so he wants to set the record straight. He wants to set proper expectations and align with them. You think the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately when we arrive in Jerusalem. It's not. And here's a story to illustrate why that is, uh, in fact, the case. Verse 12, he says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, in the Roman, uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, you know, I mean, I explained it before, but Rome was kind of this ever-expanding empire that was constantly, you know, assimilating civilizations into it, kind of annexing them, and then kind of keep continuing to expand and expand, and... Uh, what they would do is, uh, uh, unless absolutely necessary, they would choose someone local. I mean, we talked about tax collectors last week. They would choose a local person to be a tax collector. They would also choose a local person to be the, the king of that region, right? kind of to be a, an under uh, an, an authority. Rome has the final say. Anything that, that happens, you know, we are the, the ones who, you know, kind of the final word, the buck stops with Rome, but we're going to kind of deputize uh, rule local rulers over local municipalities, and they would kind of try to, you know, as best as they could, live at peace with them. Worship whoever you want to want, worship, just worship Caesar too. Kind of do whatever, you don't have to like abolish your customs, you just have to live by ours as well and kind of be under, like we are the final, the final line of authority. You can kind of have your own relative degree of sovereignty, 
but it's under our uh, final authority. And so when when uh, when an opening would come, right? When when uh, you know when someone would die in office, or when they would like leave office, and there would be need for a new king, uh, a nobleman would go from his hometown, his home region, and travel to Rome and appeal to Caesar and say, "I would like for you to affirm and confirm and install me as the king over my home region." Caesar would do it. So uh, in this story, it's kind of what, what's happening, right? The, the, the nobleman or the man of noble birth is traveling from his hometown, presumably a place like Jerusalem or Jericho, and he's traveling to uh, a distant country, a far country, presumably a place like Rome, uh, so that he can go before a more powerful king who has the final authority, presumably uh, someone like Caesar, uh, so that he can be confirmed as king and then return back to his home region as king over his citizens. And this would have sounded familiar, right? It was None of this is like new to any of Jesus' hearers in the first century because that's what they saw happen. That's what happened with, with uh, King Herod the Great, uh, who was alive when Jesus was born, and his sons, Herod Antipas and Herod Archelaus, who we see mentioned later on uh, in, in the Gospels. They All of those guys, they, they kind of made these treks, these pilgrimages from Judea, where they reigned locally, to Rome to appeal to Caesar and say, we want you to make us uh, the local regional king over our area. So that's kind of what's happening in this story. Uh, This nobleman is headed that way. Um, He says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. This is where it starts to sound familiar, like the story of the talents in Matthew 25. Like I said, a few differences. If, you want, if you're interested in them, see me after class. We'll, we'll talk, kind of talk it over. But it's enough to make us think that these are probably two different stories that were told at two different uh, times. He takes 10 guys and gives them each one mina. A mina uh, is about three months wages for, for a day laborer. So probably, you know, several thousand dollars, probably somewhere between 10 and 20,000 Dollars is kind of what a mina would be like translated into today's terms. So he takes all these guys, 10 guys, and says, here's 20 grand each. I want you guys to all engage in business. I want you to buy supplies, hire employees, do marketing, right? Whatever you need to do, I want you to, to be faithful with this $20,000 and, and bring, you know, bring a return. When, when I come back, I'm going to see how you invested it, how you used it, and what you have to show for it. And the assumption is he's going to be gone for a long time because he's going to a far country. So he's loaded up, saddled up with all of his supplies for a lengthy, uh, a lengthy trip. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So, so this nobleman from a place like Judea going to a place like Rome to appeal to someone like Caesar, uh, you know, he, he, uh, the, the citizens that are there in Judea say, we don't want this guy as our king. We don't like him. So we're going to go send a, a delegation of people to, to appeal to the big king, Caesar, and tell him that we don't want this guy to be our little regional kind of local uh, king. Which this would have also sounded familiar to Jesus' hearers as well, because that's what happened to one of Herod's sons. So Herod the dad, Herod the Great, was the guy that none of the Herods were bad. They were all, you know, bad guys. Herod the Great... Jesus was born. He's the guy who commissions to have all children under the age of two slaughtered because someone he hears rumor that this boy that was just born is going to be the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. 
So I want to stamp out the competition. So he has a mass genocide of all young males in the region. Jesus barely escapes. That's Herod the Great, bad guy. His sons, you know, Pete and repeat, uh, Herod Antipas and Herod Archelaus. Herod Antipas was the guy who uh, was having an affair with his brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece. Uh, and John the Baptist calls him out on it, and he uh, gets mad. He throws John the Baptist in jail. Later, he has John the Baptist beheaded. He's also the guy who's involved in Jesus' trial. Jesus is brought before Herod Antipas. Um, so he's a bad guy as, as well. Uh, and then you've got Herod Archelaus. He's the guy who this is reminiscent of. Herod Archelaus went on his pilgrimage to go appeal to Caesar and say, make me the king of this region of Judea. And the Jews sent a, a delegation and said, no, this guy's a bad guy. We do not want him to be our king. Because just before that, there had been a scuffle uh, in and around the temple over authority, essentially. And Herod Archelaus uh, had 3,000 Jewish people killed in the temple on Passover. And so right on the heels of that is when he goes to Caesar to say, I want to be king. And the Jews are saying, no, this guy's bad. He is uh, a tyrant. He's violent. He's wicked. We don't want him. So again, this is all kind of like this story, which this, this nobleman in this story is nothing like uh, Herod or either of his sons, but it kind of sets it, it kind of, it gives these guys who are listening to Jesus categories for how to understand what they, what they are hearing, right? It's kind of, it's kind of, based loosely on or slightly reminiscent of some current events. So it's engaged in business till I come. His citizens hated him. They said, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So it appears that the delegation that was sent to the big king to keep this guy from being installed as the little king was unsuccessful. He says, you know, I don't, you know, you guys are, you know, probably a loud, vocal minority, but you're, you don't speak for the, the full region. I'm going to go ahead and install this guy. So he comes back. Now he's the king, brings these guys in. You know, I gave you 20 grand a few weeks ago. Uh, what have you done with it? Have you wasted it? Have you squandered it? Uh, or have you uh, invested it? Have you turned a profit on it? The first one came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more which is a huge, a huge uh, turn, like, that's a massive profit to turn, to, to, to increase, you know, to give a tenfold return on investment in just a few weeks is, is remarkable. It's pretty, pretty unbelievable. And so he's uh, obviously pleased, right? You turn 20 grand into $200,000 in a matter of weeks. That's excellent. That's awesome. So now I'm going to make you uh, the ruler over 10 cities, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful very little. So, and, and that's a big step up, right? 20 grand is one thing, right? It's one thing to invest 20 grand, uh, but to give someone authority over 10 cities represents probably millions of dollars worth of, of assets and infrastructure that you have to oversee and be responsible for. So this is a huge, you know, he said, you're faithful and little, 20,000. Now I'm going to give you a lot, millions and millions of dollars over which to be uh, responsible. Second guy comes and says, Lord, your one mina has made five minas, which is also pretty good, right? Turn 20 grand into $100,000. That's also, I mean, both of them are way better than any, like, anything, any, any like, stock holdings that any of us have. We, uh, they're, they're probably not increasing by the, you know, unless you hit, like, Bitcoin or something, right, before it, or what's the, what's the thing, like, GameStop, like, when it, like, 
you hit something like that, then you'll like see a five or tenfold increase in a matter of days or weeks. Chances are it won't it won't happen. Um, so he says I I you know brought up a return of five five hundred percent return in just a few weeks. He says great, you are you have authority over five. I made the other guy the governor of the made the other guy the governor of New York. You're the governor of Kansas. Like you're pretty good. It's not bad, right? Like you you guys are are both faithful. You've both been fruitful. And now because you are faithful with little, I'm going to entrust a lot more uh, to you. And then a third one came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief. So he does nothing with the the resources that were uh, entrusted to him, that were invested in him and his company. Presumably these guys are business owners. And so the, the, the king is saying, here, here's some money for your business. I want you to take your business and to, to you know, bear fruit with this money that I'm investing in you. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't hire employees, doesn't buy supplies, doesn't, you know, he just sets the money on, balls it up in a napkin, sets it on his dresser, and then just leaves it, right? Doesn't, doesn't do anything with it, doesn't, uh, doesn't work, doesn't earn, just, you know, sits on the couch, Probably first day, probably assumes, all right, well, I got a sizable investment that I need to yield a return on, but I'll wait until tomorrow So I'm a little, a little tired. Tomorrow comes, I'll push it to the next day. Days turns into weeks. Before you know it, the, the king is back demanding an account for his money, and it's never left the napkin that it was kind of wadded up in and, and kind of put on his, on his dresser at home. But it's not just that he doesn't yield any return on his money, which that's bad enough, right? right? The, the, the king said, be faithful, engage in business with this money. He doesn't do it. Disobeys, disregards, don't care what you say. I'd rather do my own thing. But that's not, that's, as if that's bad enough, uh, he says, Lord, here's your mina, and I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. It's not just that I didn't do what you told me. It's that I didn't do what you told me, and then when I am called to account for it, when, when the you know when, when I am when I have to give an account for what I've done or what I haven't done, as the case may be, I'm going to point the finger back at you and say my faithlessness and my disobedience is ultimately attributed to you and your character. Right? I didn't fail to bring a return on your investment because I'm lazy. I didn't fail to bring a return on your investment because I'm incompetent. I, did, I, I didn't bring a return on your investment because I was afraid of, of you. Right? I was afraid that, that maybe if I went out and bought supplies and I didn't turn a profit on it, you would be, you would be mad. And it's, it's your fault because you're severe, you're selfish, you're greedy, you take from people what you did not sow. Right? You take things that are rightfully theirs. Because you're a bad guy, because you're dishonest, because you're abusive, because you exploit people, that's why I did not bring a profit back for you. Kind of reminiscent of Adam in the garden, right? Right. God says, where are you? And he says, I was afraid. Like this guy says, I was afraid. Why were you afraid? I hid because, uh, because the, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit to eat of it. This is your fault. If you hadn't have done X, Y, and Z, then I wouldn't have done the things that you commanded me not to do. It's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. It's not our fault. It's your fault. This king, or the, the, the 
default posture in this servant's heart is the same as the default posture in, in all of our hearts, that when we're confronted, when we're exposed, when our flaws and sins and shortcomings are uh, brought to light, we tend to point our finger at anyone else, blame anyone uh, except ourselves, and refuse to re- confess and repent and take responsibility. Listen as the king responds. He says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. So without necessarily uh, acknowledging or, or you know, admitting that he is, in fact, uh, a severe uh, man, he says, that, well, like, we'll just assume for a second that maybe you are right. Let's, let's kind of run your excuse out and see if it actually tracks with reality. I'll condemn you with your own words. If you knew that I was severe then why didn't you put my money in the bank? Why didn't you, uh, why didn't you make it to where I could collect it with, with interest, right? If you are right in saying that I'm a bad guy, if you're right in saying that I, I insist on seeing profit all the time, and I get mad if I don't see a profit, then why didn't you, at the very least, why didn't you do something that was a low-risk proposition to return a profit, like put your money uh, in, in the bank? Even if you're not able to, you know, do business with it yourself and yield a five or ten times uh, return like these other guys, why didn't you at least get one percent, two percent, three percent instead of doing nothing at all and then having nothing to show for it? And the ruler said, the king said, those to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Right? This guy's not faithful. This guy is lazy. This guy is incompetent. Uh, this guy deliberately disobeyed me, and then he insulted me and said it was my fault, so I'm done with him. Take the mina from him and give it to the guy who was diligent. Give it to the guy who uh, engaged in business like I instructed him to do. Everyone says, Lord, that's crazy. He has 10 minas already. This guy only has one. This guy has 10. It's not fair to take from him and give to him. That can't be right. That can't be fair. And he says, I tell you, everyone who has more will be given. But the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. So the king says, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about basic necessities here. Right? I'm not advocating for some system of steal from the poor and give to the rich, right? Some pond like Bernie Madoff, right? Like where you, you know, take advantage of people who are poor and vulnerable, line the pockets of the of the richest people in society. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where I'm going to invest my money. I'm a, I'm a person. I'm a high net worth individual. I need to invest my money somewhere. And what I'm saying is I'm going to put my money with the people who work, the people who earn, the people who are faithful, the people who are competent, the people who are diligent. If there's one guy bringing in huge returns and there's another guy that's lazy and idle and remaining stagnant, I'm going to pull my investment from the guy who's stagnant, and I'm going to put it with the guy who's bringing in huge returns. Not a, I'm not trying to steal from the poor and give to the rich, but I am a good and wise investor, and I want to invest in profitable companies run by good people instead of sinking money into bad companies that are run by people who are selfish and lazy. Verse 27, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Right, so the, 
the king is now recalling the delegation of people from verse 14, I think it was. Um, the people that were protesting and trying to sway the big king's decision and saying we don't want him to be our king. Their attempt failed, uh, but the little king uh, didn't forget it. He realized it. And so he says, uh, you know, all of those people who opposed me, tried to overthrow me, tried to give my throne to someone else. Uh, I want you to bring them here. I want them to be executed because of their treason against the, against the throne, their treason against the king. They, they rejected me as king. They rejected my authority. They tried to install someone else as their king. They tried to be an authority unto themselves to be their own king. And so now they don't get to live in my kingdom. They don't get to live under my righteous rule. Right? The, the privilege of living in my kingdom and living under my benevolent rule as king is that you have to be loyal to me. You have to acknowledge my authority to rule in your life. It's the parable of the ten minors. I want to take the, the remaining, the last few minutes here to kind of just consider some theological interpretation and some theological application that we can derive from this parable so that we can, you know, understand what it means for us today, what it means for us in our lives uh, today. And the first is this, Jesus is the rightful king over your life. Jesus is the rightful king over your life. Even though his kingship wasn't fully seen or fully recognized at his first coming, even though his kingdom wasn't fully established at his first coming, Jesus will return. And when he does, his kingdom will be established because Jesus is the rightful king over your life. Which kind of circles back to uh, why he told the parable in the first place, right? Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So, so uh, according to the people's uh, assumptions, presuppositions, the story would have just said uh, the, the king, the, the nobleman was instantly made king. But instead, there's this, there's this window of time where the nobleman leaves and he's made king and then he comes back later and he demands an account of the people that remained there. And so Jesus is kind of implying with this story that there's going to be a window of time between my first coming right now when we're about to enter Jerusalem and my second coming. Sometime in the future, when I return to establish my kingdom, finally, once and for all, when I'm going to demand that all people give an account to me. So Jesus is kind of setting the stage to say, I'm not going to Jerusalem right now to be installed as king. I'm about to go away and come back later to be installed as king. So put your weapons down, put your pitchforks down. We're not about to have a revolution in fact, what's going to happen is we're going to get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be executed, and then you're going to start a church, and then you're going to be the persecuted minority pretty much for the rest of your lives. Right? Everyone that's kind of in within earshot of Jesus at this moment, after he dies, they are either, uh, if they're going to be a part of the church, they're going to be the persecuted minority. So Jesus is saying, first of all, like I am not going to uh, establish my kingdom and be installed as king right now. But obviously, from the implication of the story, that doesn't mean that I never will be. That doesn't mean that Jesus never will, right? I might not be uh, getting ready to be installed as king when we arrive in Jerusalem in a couple of days, but I will, in fact, be installed as king at some point. Jesus is the sovereign king over your life. You owe him your allegiance. Jesus exists right now. 
sitting at the right hand of the Father in power and glory, being worshipped by angels, being worshipped by uh, departed saints that have gone uh, into his presence. Jesus is ruling and reigning. The implication is, you're not the king, Jesus is the king, right? Your preferences is, are not the king, Jesus is the king. Your job is not the king, uh, Jesus is the king. Your uh, status, how you're perceived by others is not the king, Jesus is. Your financial security, your sinful habits and addictions, those things are not the king, Jesus is the king. He is the sovereign king over and above every uh, little K king that exists in this world. Jesus is uh, king over your life. He will return. His kingdom will be established. That's kind of point number one that we can derive from this parable. And point number two is that when Jesus returns, right, when his sovereign authority is universally recognized, when his kingdom is established once and for all, when Jesus returns, he will demand an account from you. He'll demand an account uh, for whether you received him as king and submitted to his authority. He'll demand an account of whether you were faithful with the gifts and resources that he entrusted to you and that he invested in you. Right? It's not just that Jesus is the king, statement of fact, full stop. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus is the king. Statement of fact, Jesus has died to save you, right? A lot of in, a lot of indicative statements of fact followed by an imperative command. You are to respond in this particular way. You are going to answer to Jesus uh, when he returns. Jesus is the king and you are called to respond by acknowledging his kingship, bowing your knee to him, declaring to him that he is king. Declaring to yourself that he is king. Declaring to the world around you that Jesus is king over your life. Verse 14, the citizens say, that man is not our king. We hate him. We will not let him rule over us. We do not recognize his authority here. This is my life, my turf, my territory, my kingdom. He's not my king. I'm my own king. I don't have to answer to him. I don't have to do what he says. No one tells me what to do. If I want to eat from the fruit in the middle of the garden, daggone it, I'm going to do it. No one tells me what to do. If I want to murder my brother, Abel, in cold blood, I'm going to do it. No one tells me what to do. If I want to worship other gods, I'm going to do that. No one tells me what to I am the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I, I make my destiny. I say what to do, what not to do. No one tells me what to do. No one tells me who to believe. No one tells me, uh, you know, who I'm to. I make the rules. I am king. I am God. That's what the that's what the citizens are saying in verse fourteen, and that's what the human heart, in its natural posture says back to God. You can't tell me what to do. I hate the thought of you having authority over me. I am an authority unto myself. All of a sudden, when the grace of God invades a human heart, when it softens a human heart, 
when it takes the heart of stone and it replaces it with a heart of flesh, then the human heart is, is, is animated, it's, it's enlivened, it's able to look to God and say, I don't want to be my own God anymore. I don't want to be my own authority anymore. I don't want to be my own king anymore. I look to God. I trust God. I submit to God. God is my authority. I bow my knee to him. I acknowledge that he is my king. I'm not my own king. He is my king. I don't hate him. I don't reject his authority. I gladly and willingly submit to him. So Jesus is the king. Jesus is going to return and demand an account. Uh, on the one hand, he's going to demand an account of whether or not you submitted to him, you acknowledged him as your king. But on the other hand, he's going to demand an account of uh, how you, uh, of, of whether or not you were faithful with the resources that he invested in you and that he entrusted to you, right? Because of the citizens that were loyal to the king, Not the ones that sent the delegation and said, we don't want him to be our king, but of the citizens that said, he's our king, we're with him, we identify with him. It's not just a matter of kind of making this uh, one-time decision, right? Checking a box that says, I'm with the king, he is my, right, I'm with him, I'm, I'm not rebelling against him, I am aligning with him. That's part of it. But then the rest of it is then being faithful with the resources that were entrusted to you and that were invested in you. Which is exactly what Jesus does with his people, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus saves his people, and then he presents to invest countless, priceless resources in them, entrust countless, priceless resources to them. Jesus saves his people, and then he calls them into a new life of repentance and faith and costly discipleship. He gives them his Holy Spirit. He gives them spiritual gifts. And he expects them to grow. He expects them to be fruitful. He expects them to thrive spiritually as the result of the, the spiritual resources that he has entrusted to them, which raises the question for us, are we growing like these faithful servants are growing what God has entrusted to them? Are we growing as followers of God, citizens in his kingdom. Right, you immediately think of money, but this is not, I mean, and this is, oh, this is about money. It's not, it's not not about money, uh, but, but it's, you know, about, it, it transcends money to any sort of material, immaterial, financial, spiritual, any sort of gift that God has given you he didn't give it to you strictly to enjoy it and dispose of it. He gave it to you so that you could invest it and that you could grow it. So again, you know, not even talking exclusively about money, but, you know, think of the Bible that you own, right? That you brought with you to church or that you have on your phone or that you have in your, your home. God has given you his word. God has entrusted you with a Bible, the, the sovereign Lord of the universe who exists in this otherworldly, right? Like he is completely inaccessible to us. We are finite. He is infinite. That God has decided to communicate his thoughts, put them down into words in a language that we can understand, put them in a book that you can hold in your hand. 
It's written in your original language. You don't have to learn some, you know, foreign language to read your Bible. God has given you every opportunity to listen to him and learn from him and, and grow as the result of being exposed to his word. And the question is, are we? Are you being faithful with the gifts that God has entrusted to you? Are you listening to the word of God? Are you taking advantage from the fact that it's been entrusted to you? Or are you taking it for granted and leaving it balled up in a napkin on your dresser? Or prayer? Not only has God spoken to you, not only has God taken his infinite, eternal, perfect uh, words and thoughts and made them to where you can read them anytime that you want, God has also given you the privilege of communicating with him, speaking to him. God has given you a direct line to communicate with him anytime that you want. He's invited you to, to pray personally and individually. He's invited you to pray corporately with your fellow church members, and it raises the question, are we doing that? Are we being faithful? Are we spending time communicating with God, meditating on Scripture, thinking about it, and then praying through it in our soul? Are we coming to God with the, the needs in our lives, praying that God would grow us, praying that God would make us more patient, praying that God would make us more humble, praying that God would make us more godly, praying that God would make us better spouses and parents and church members, interceding for the souls of our friends and family and neighbors, praying that they would come to know Jesus? Are we attending member meetings so that we can pray together? Are we, are we being faithful to pray individually and with one another? Are we taking advantage of the resources that God has entrusted to us? Or are we taking them for granted and balling them up in a handkerchief and leaving them on the dresser? Or the gift of the local church. God could have, God very easily could have saved you from your sin and then sent you back into your life, back into the wild with no one. Just all by yourself. Here's your Bible. Figure out, good luck figuring it out what it says, right? Right, you, you were assigned to read Great Expectations in high school and you blew that off. Good luck reading the Bible now that you're a grown-up. Like, you know, good luck with the Christian life all by yourself. Here's prayer. Good luck figuring out how to do it. Hope you're a self-starter, sink or swim, because you're all alone. God could have done that with the Christian life, and instead he gives you a church, a place where you can come and gather and be taught and be encouraged and be discipled and be trained up on how to flourish in your faith. He gives you a group of people that you can hear God's word together, pray together, sing together, celebrate the sacraments together, covenant with one another, profess your faith to one another, affirm one another's professions of faith together, a place where you can disciple other people, where you can help them to grow and help them to follow Jesus. God has entrusted to us in the local church incredible, innumerable spiritual resources and expects us to grow. And the question is, are we? Are we being faithful? Are we leaning into the local church, attending, giving, serving, loving our fellow church members, obeying, 
uh, the commands of the New Testament that pertain to them? Are we bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep? Are we taking an active role, guarding the purity of the doctrine of our local church, looking out for our fellow members of our local church? Are we being faithful with the resources that have been entrusted to us? Or are we taking them for granted and leaving them balled up in a, in a napkin on our dresser? Right? This parable teaches that Jesus is the king. Jesus has gone away for a time. Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to demand an account of how we have been faithful with all of the resources that he has invested in us. God has saved us by his grace, given us his word, given us access to him in prayer, given us a local church, a community to grow in. He's given us a family, spouse, kids, parents, siblings, opportunities to love him and serve him. And he's called us to be faithful with them. And he's promised that if we are faithful with the spiritual resources that he has entrusted to us and invested in us, then more will be given, right? To everyone who has, even more will be given. Which means that if you walk with God and obey God, if you, if you read your Bible and pray and lean into your local church, then God will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose him before the foundation of the world and predestined you for adoption through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians chapter 1, right? God says, if you're faithful with the spiritual resources I've entrusted to you, I'll bless, the, the more you pray, the more I'll answer your prayers. The more that you read your Bible, the more that you will love reading your Bible. The more you lean into your local church, the more that your local church is going to serve and nurture and help you to thrive and flourish spiritually. And if you disobey, if you're not faithful with the resources that God has entrusted to you, He's not going to keep entrusting more to you. If you don't read your Bible, then reading your Bible is not going to suddenly, magically become easier and more enjoyable. If you don't, uh, if you're not faithful in prayer, then God's not going to suddenly, magically bless your prayer life. If you don't share the gospel with others, then God is not going to suddenly, magically give you a thriving evangelistic ministry. If you don't lean in to your local church and attend and serve and participate, if you distance yourself from the body of Christ, then, then you can and should expect that your heart will grow cold. Faithfulness and obedience will become more difficult. Frustration, resentment, entitlement will become more and more natural. The parable of the, of the minas tells us that Jesus is the, the rightful king over our life. He's created us. He owns the rights over us. We owe everything to him. And it asks the question, will we submit to him? Will we acknowledge him as our king? Will we bow our knee to him so that we can live joyfully under his sovereign rule? Or will we reject him and rebel against him and invite his condemnation and wrath? And it tells us that Jesus will demand an account of us, right, of whether we were faithful with the gifts and resources that he has invested in us. And it asks if we will be faithful, if we will leverage the gifts that God has entrusted to us to grow and bear fruit so that God will commend us and reward us, or will we lay those gifts aside, being indifferent to their value, failing to bear fruit, stagnating spiritually, 
and then be judged accordingly. What this parable tells us about Christ, who he is, what he's done in his kingdom, and it's what it calls us to, to do in our lives in response. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the true king. You're the rightful king, sovereign over all things, sovereign over our lives. And Lord, we come to you this morning, collectively bowing our knee before you, acknowledging your lordship and your supremacy. Lord, we confess and repent of the areas in our lives where we struggle to do that, where we are tempted to be our own king instead of submitting to you. And Lord, we pray that we could receive the gifts that you have entrusted to us and that you have invested in us. We pray that we could be faithful with them and that we could bear fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.